Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, and Eric, a little bit of like personal anniversary news. Uh, this week, I realized it was the 20th anniversary of my very first credential fight, uh, which was Oscar De Loya against Jane Mosley 2 at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas on September 13th, 2003. Uh, I looked at that credential and it identified me simply as freelance. I had no affiliations hmm. at the time. I just had freelance on my credential for, I think, my first couple of years ringside. Um, my photo was of someone who had brown hair and was apparently happy and smiling <laughs> and pleased to be involved in boxing. Um, my seat was stuck way up in the auxiliary section, up in the bleachers. Um, and I thought to myself, Oh, this will be just one of a few fights I'll attend over a six-month period while I write this book that, I, that I'm working on, and then I'll move on and leave boxing behind. But here we are. Um, but, you know, to the risk of overusing a cliche, it really does feel like yesterday. Like, I remember it vividly. Um, I remember my emotions of being at that first fight. I remember being really sad when it was over on the Sunday, and I was walking around the casino thinking, oh, this is how we really missed this. This fight was great. But the notion that it was two decades ago is just astonishing to me. Uh, time really has flown past, as I'm sure it has for you, particularly over the last 10 or so years that we've been podcasting together. I'm sure the time is just whizzed past for you. <laughs> yeah, I guess a, a little uh, a little self-deprecation through sarcasm there by you, uh, which, <laughs> which, which, which I appreciate. Because, uh, yeah, as, as you know well, Kieran, every single second spent talking to you feels like an eternity. I'm sure everyone in your life tells you that. Um, but, but seriously, happy 20th anniversary, and uh, my apologies for the fact that nearly half your time in boxing journalism has been spent co-hosting podcasts with me. See, I, I can do self-deprecating too. Um, and what are you at 25 years or something like that? Yeah. What's this year? Oh, I'm at uh, 20, 26 years, 26 years since I uh, first got into boxing and uh, two weeks away, roughly from the 26th anniversary of, of my first fight, which uh, I guess uh, be, the, the co-feature on my first fight card, as I've mentioned many times, Gaddy Ruelas, probably tops anything you saw on your first fight card, but mostly Oscar too. not a bad fight to get started with. And, uh, and of course it's, it's mostly remembered for the scoring controversy. Um, watching on the HBO broadcast, I remember it seemed like a total robbery. And then I remember uh, Nigel coming back from Vegas and telling us in the office that Monday morning, Oh no, no, Mosley deserved to win. And I, and I was like, what, what are you talking about? And, and then I rewatched it and, yeah, it was at least closer than it seemed initially, and and it depended mostly how much credit you gave Shane for body shots. And, but have you having been there, but having been up in the bleachers, I'm curious. Do you, do you recall whether you were able to see it well enough to score one way or the other, and uh, feel a particular way about who won the fight? Oddly, I do recall that I scored it fractionally for Oscar up mm -hmm. in way up in the bleachers, and and a lot of the, the the fans around me also i think felt similarly and uh, that was before i realized that there's just the worst people in the world to ask who they think when the right. fight but then i was surprised when i got into the media room that there was you know how it's like when you walk into a media and it's and there's controversy and then different journalists get sometimes get their chest puffed out a little bit like no oscar won no shane won um 
but I think I was a bit surprised that the majority of ringside riders thought that, that Shane had won that fight. And, and it was the first time that I was made aware of the notion that it's different when you're ringside because you feel you get a better sense of the quality of the punches, right. which is something that, that you and I certainly know. Um, but at the time, it was just an alien concept to me. I, I wasn't aware that, you know, depending on where you could sit, you could sometimes tell that punches that might get missed if you're up in the bleachers or watching on tv you can really tell ringside landed significantly and i think that was a lot of what the folks ringside were saying about shane's punches that, that he was landing with greater authority now of course shane was juiced to the eyeballs <laughs> right there's that there was a controversy later to follow the initial controversy yeah yes yeah exactly so so yeah he should have been landing with greater authority but yeah that was um that was <laughs> Oh, I'm telling tales out of school here, but what the hell? Um, mm. I remember Kevin Holy saying to me, like he was sitting trying to in the media room trying to write, and Michael Katz, who unfortunately I suspect a lot of our listeners will not have had the opportunity to read and enjoy Michael Katz because it's been a long time since since Katz wrote anything, but he was sort of the dean of boxing writers the time and he was sitting behind kevin and he just kept poking him with his with his cane he was walking with a cane (laughs) and he just kept poking him in the back like wanting to know what he thought about who won he's like kevin kevin and kevin just like i thought oscar won or and kevin just turns around grabs his cane pulls it away from him and says you touch me with that again i'm gonna break this fucking cane wow and uh, and anyway shane won because Kevin was on deadline, right? And Michael wasn't. So, right. <laughs> um, well, that that is not the most famous uh, physical interaction Michael Katz ever had in the press room with another writer. And I, if I can take issue with one word you used, it was saying that people who don't recall uh, Michael Katz uh, maybe are too young, whatever. You used the word unfortunately. Uh, I I had my run-ins with Michael Katz, and I don't think it's unfortunate if you didn't know him. But uh, that's oh, just me. His writing. I meant in terms of his writing purely, which I always thought was pretty. Good. Okay. Okay. All right. That's I mean, fair. I won't. Yeah, no, uh, I won't. That's a different matter. Well, I agree <laughs> with you. There. That's a different issue. But right. yes, I was strictly speaking in terms of like not getting exposure to to his what I generally thought generally thought was his very thoughtful writing. But that's fair. Yes. Okay. Fine. I'll uh, I'll concede I that. Other famous fight, by the way. I missed it by seconds. That other Michael Katz interaction in the press room. Would, do you recall which fight that was at? I don't. I remember it was at the MGM somewhere, okay. and I remember walking into the media room. I don't know where I'd been. I was like, uh, Steve Flynn was on the, the, the desk there in the corral, and, and his team. I remember walking in with a smile, going, hey, guys, what's up? And they and you could, I could just immediately tell something. <laughs> something could happen. Right. And for those who don't know, Michael Katz and Ron Borges got into it. Right. And like little, I mean, yeah, to at the time, 50, 60 something boxing writers right. like flopping around all over each other. Lee Samuels jumped on top of Bob Arum to protect him, as I recall, going, I've got the chief. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you and I are roughly in that kind of age, age range, <laughs> sadly enough, I think we owe it to ourselves to get into a, a nice physical scrap with someone in the press room at our next opportunity. Yeah, we got to find someone who's even older than us. It's uh, Norm Fraunheim. I'm looking at you, buddy. <laughs> you can totally take Norm. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. Norm's got some like sharp corners and stuff going on. I don't know. He's a uh... He could do some damage. All right. Well, nevertheless, my money, my money is on you uh, against against approximately 20 years your senior Norm Fraunheim. <laughs> right. Exactly. The sad thing is, it's still pretty much even money. But there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
All right. I think we've spent 24 minutes on this uh, on this opening banter, so we probably get on with it. <laughs> we should, I suppose, yeah. Um, and we are closing in rapidly on the big September 30th pay-per-view clash from Las Vegas, headlined by Canelo Alvarez taking on Jamel Charlo. And our guest this week is the first time I hear on the podcast, but a well-known veteran in the sport, Kevin Cunningham, who will be in the corner of Ericsson Lubin for that card's co-main event as Lubin takes on Jesus Ramos Jr. Um, Eric will give me his top five fighters who moved up in weight, and he'll challenge me with another edition of the fight game. We'll look at the week's news. We'll look ahead to next week's heavyweight rematch between Zhang Zhilai and Joe Joyce. But first, the weekend's action, uh, beginning with a showbox triple header in San Antonio. With the main event, Eric, that did not look anything like our prediction. No, it did not. Uh, we both predicted unbeaten Panamanian super bantamweight Rafael Pedroza would defeat hometown fighter Ramon Cardenas. Uh, but... Boy, were we wrong, and it didn't take long to realize how wrong we were. Cardenas yeah. looked far looser and livelier from the very beginning, and before Pedroza had a chance to get anything going, it was over. Cardenas dropped Pedroza with a left hook early in the second round. Pedroza got up, tried to fight back, but Cardenas dropped him even harder with another hook, prompting referee Rafael Ramos to halt the bout without a count at 123 of the round, and of course prompting me to get mildly angry that Ramos didn't start a count, because, you know, <laughs> that's what it's there in the rules for, to start counting and assess the fighter if he gets up. But I digress. Uh, with the big KO2 victory, Cardenas improves to 22-1, and while Pedroza drops to 15-1. and Kieran, my pet PV rant aside, there's not much to talk about here because the action was over so quickly but uh tell me what you saw how did cardenas bring the upset uh, the risk of something incredibly basic he had a plan and he set out to execute it he knew that pedroza is a self-described slow starter and he made the decision to jump on him early and test him and, and see what happened um clearly pedroza someone who likes to settle into his own pace and cardenas just didn't let him um and he figured out that that left hook was the punch to land and once he had that dialed in he he just kept looking to land it and he had the distance worked out really well i mean those hooks landed right on the button um and he went in there with you know clearly with complete and total belief that he was going to win this fight and and you asked me last week about whether cardenas would have a real hometown advantage and i was so convinced that pedrosa was going to win this fight i said nah but i think he did i think he appeared invigorated by having that right. crowd uh, behind him and he, and uh, that definitely gave him that boost i think gave him that energy um and in contrast and i think it was raul uh, calling at ringside who, who mentioned this early pedroza looked tense he looked like he was a little overwhelmed by the experience it was his first time fighting in the united states or anywhere outside of panama um first time you know on a network like showtime and it just you know had he been able to get a few rounds to work himself out, he probably would have loosened up. But Cardenas just didn't like him. I, from a Pedroza point of view, I don't think it was good how easily Cardenas touched him. And to talk again about that second knockdown, I mean, I agree with you. That, that was absolutely the kind of knockdown where you would expect Ramos to, to, to count. I was surprised that he didn't. But also that kind of, and again, I'm not the person taking the punches, but the way in which Cardenas kind of responded to it by putting his head back down again and putting his hand behind his head like he was getting ready for a nap or he just didn't want to get <laughs> right. up. I mean, he didn't look very into it, did he, Pedroza? So I don't know. It just it wasn't a good look for Pedroza. I honestly didn't see this coming. I was reasonably high. Actually, I was pretty high on Pedroza from the video that I'd seen coming in, yeah. but he just didn't look in it at all. 
was this just one of those nights? Was it just that he seized up uh, on the big stage here, Eric? Or having watched three and four and a half minutes of him, do we do we need to reassess his ceiling? Was I wrong to be that excited about him? Well, if if you were, I was as well. I was just as excited, and and I would say, yeah, we, I think we need to reassess. Not to say he can't bounce back from this and and still prove to be a good fighter, but. I get the feeling he's a guy who isn't as good as his resume against the competition in Panama suggested. As you said, this was his first fight outside Panama. I guess the video that we saw that we were both impressed with flattered to deceive a bit. Just maybe the opposition wasn't much. Um, and, And also, you know, maybe above all, I guess we underestimated Cardenas. As you said, he came with a great plan. Um, But Pedroza just wasn't as advertised, starting with the fact that the tail of the tape said he was five inches taller than Cardenas. And <laughs> instead, he looked, I don't know, two or three inches taller, maybe. Um, but um, credit Cardenas. He, he was a better counterpuncher than I realized. Uh, the left hook was damn quick and sharp. And as you said, he had the distance just right. Maybe something about the experience of leaving Panama and coming to the U.S. threw Pedroza off his game and this was an aberration and he'll do better next time but i kind of think more likely his defense isn't good enough he isn't fast enough and his chin is certainly at least not made of iron uh so i i would say his ceiling isn't what we thought it was a week ago uh but you know as an observer as a as a fan and a journalist and all that I like when this happens, when we get a fight completely wrong. It, 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 it's, yeah. nice to, it's nice to be totally surprised once in a while, right? Uh, and, uh, and this one totally surprised me. I, I thought I knew who was going to win, but uh, not so much. And Pedroza becomes the 235th fighter in the 22-year history of Showbox to lose his undefeated record on the series. Nobody takes O's like Gordon Hall does. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, as for the rest of the card... The two undercard fights both went the distance, although both were one-sided. In the co-main event, Mirko Cuello scored a controversial knockdown and was saved from officially being knocked down himself as he won a very wide unanimous decision, wide enough that the knockdown call and non-call ultimately didn't matter. Uh, That was against Rudy Garcia in a 10-round featherweight contest. All three judges scored the fight 99-90. Cuello moves to 13-0, while Garcia drops to 13-1-1. And in the opener, welterweight Freitas Rojas remained unbeaten at 12-0 as he won a clear decision over Sol Bostos, who drops to 15-2-1. Uh, scores were 79-73 twice and 80-72. Kieran, any thoughts on those two contests? So I was more impressed with one of the winners than the other. I, I thought Rojas looked very good, especially early. Um, through five rounds, he was just dominant and virtually untouchable, and Bustos just couldn't get to him. I mean, Bustos knew where he was. He knew what he needed to do. Like it, uh, it was the most matter-of-fact conversation in the corner that you could ever really, really hear. Um, Bustos was doing a lot of the talking, just saying he's really hard to hit. Um, he just didn't know how to execute what he wanted to do um, because Rojas was just doing an excellent job uh, of maximizing his his reach and his footwork. Um, and I also like the fact that. Rojas wasn't on his back foot, but was keeping Bustos off him by stepping into his jab and mixing up his punches. Um, honestly, he was doing what I thought Pedroza was going to do, because I remember talking about that last week, that what I liked about Pedroza is he was tall, but he stepped into his jab, and it was uh, it, it was Rojas who did that. But um, also, worst possible luck for Bustos uh, to roll his ankle in right. the sixth round, just as he was threatening 
to uh to make a late charge but full credit to him for pressing to the to the very end and same goes for garcia and the co-main never gave up for everything he had was in many respects the better more creative more complete boxer but Garcia and that co-main was definitely let down by his lack of power and, and the heavy-handedness of Cuello was very obvious. Um, I don't have particularly strong opinions of either of the on either the knockdown calls on that co-main. Um, I'm not so sure that was a knockdown of Cuello, but I think on balance that surely probably made the right call with that one. Um, I would have liked to have seen Cuello set up his punches more. That's the big thing with that with that fight. I. Uh, uh, maybe it's because he just wasn't worried by what Garcia was going to be sending back at him, but he felt like he was swinging for the fences an awful lot. Um, I think, again, it was Raul who mentioned it, that Cuello could be in trouble if he fights like that and gets hit that often by someone who's got more punching power than than Garcia. But, um, but you know, win is a win, and, and Cuello got that, and hopefully he'll, he'll learn something from that. But, uh, yeah, I was particularly impressed, again, with Freddie Rojas. Yeah, I'm. I was also fairly impressed with Rojas, but there there does seem to be a bit of a pattern with him where he looks dazzling for the first few rounds and then settles into being more efficient than dazzling. Um, I like him. I, he's quicker than you think he's going to be. Um, something about his physique doesn't quite lend itself typically to the sort of speed that he shows. Um, he he controls distance well. He's a tremendously pleasant and smiley kid. This was a good win uh, and against a game guy in Bustos, who, as you said, never stopped trying despite being overmatched and despite rolling his ankle. Good win, not quite a great win in my view. And, and Rojas, for me now, is is two for two on, on making me kind of feel that way by the end of his fight. Mm-hmm. Um, Cuello, kind of similar. I, I wondered last week if he is the next great Samson Lukowitz find in Argentina. My current feeling is... No, he isn't, but he's the next good Samson find, I guess. Um, This fight was fun to watch. Cuello and Garcia both make good action. Um, One thing I advertised correctly last week is that Cuello is a badass body puncher. He seemed to hurt Garcia to the body a couple of times, causing some of the holding that led to a bit of tackling and tripping in this fight. Uh, I like the way Cuello used his jab in the dead spots in the action. Um... But he was a bit wild at times. He's not great defensively. All in all, I, I'd say this was a good learning experience for him and good matchmaking by his team to get him a learning experience like this against an opponent who can't really punch. Um, but uh, jury very much still out on whether Cueo is going places. If I had to guess of the two undercard winners, I would say Freudus Rojas has the higher ceiling. Agreed. Uh, we actually have a few more fights this past weekend to discuss. Um, also taking place on Friday night on ESPN Plus, Luis Alberto Lopez defeated Joet Gonzalez on points to retain a featherweight belt, while in the co-main, Xander Zayas dropped and stopped Roberto Valenzuela Jr., taking a fifth-round win in the scheduled 10-round junior middleweight contest. And on Saturday on zone, William Zapeda completely overwhelmed Masita Gesta, stopping him in the sixth round of a welterweight matchup. Eric, let me ask you first about that, about Zapeda Gesta. What did you think about uh, about that and about Zapeda's performance on Saturday night? Well, my main takeaway is that I really felt bad for Mercito Hesta. His nickname is No Mercy. Uh, that should instead be William Zapata's nickname. He yeah. is always aggressive and, and throws at a high volume and applies relentless pressure, but he took it to another level here and... There was nothing Kesta could do. Uh, he doesn't have the skill level and footwork 
to dance and jab and prevent Cepeda from doing what he wanted to do. So he was basically screwed here. Uh, man, Cepeda is a handful. You know, without the usual huge fight for Mexican Independence Day this year, he at least provided a, an exciting display of dominance for the Mexican fight fans. A little something for him without a major fight uh, this past weekend. Um, and his performance got me thinking about where he fits in at 135. Uh, it's a fascinating division in the top five or six. None of the other top guys have a style like his. Um, he called out the lineal champ, Devin Haney, afterward, which would be a fascinating fight. You know, does Haney have the jab and footwork to do <laughs> what Hester couldn't and, and, and force a boxing match? But Haney's moving up to 140. I don't expect he'll come back down. Uh, so there's Javante Davis, Shakur Stevenson, Vasily Lomachenko, Frank Martin, Pitbull Cruz. Uh, I'd be up for seeing Zapata against any of those guys. Um, other than Pitbull Cruz, they're all clashes of styles that are very different from Zapata's. These are also some of the best boxers in the whole sport that I just named. So uh, I have to make Zapata an underdog against at least Tank, Shakur, and Loma. But he fits in very nicely here adds another very intriguing element to the top of this division. I'd make a cruise just for the sheer violence potential. Yeah, I, I would n- not be opposed to that uh, that fight coming together. That would be fun to see who breaks first, basically. <laughs> um, so so that's the Zapata fight. What were your takeaways from Lopez Gonzalez or Zayas Valenzuela? Um, Lopez, of course, the last time we saw him, he was flattening Michael Conlon with an uppercut. And, um, and he said before... Uh, Saturday's fight or uh, that uh, Friday's fight, excuse me, that he wanted to be the first person to knock out Gonzalez. Um, folks may remember that Gonzalez had previously fallen short against the aforementioned Shakur Stevenson, against Isaac Dogbay, against Emmanuel Navarrete. Um, Lopez didn't manage to achieve that, but through the first six rounds, particularly, it did look like he might. I mean, Gonzalez was um, uh, stalking forward, but boy, Lopez's angles had him befuddled, his sharp punching. Definitely had uh, had Gonzalez on shaky legs a couple of times, including in the sixth round particularly. But even as Lopez was racking up the rounds, there was Gonzalez was always sort of felt like he was in it. And he did manage to close the gap and he put on some pressure down the stretch. Um, both fighters thought it was closer than it was, it seemed. Uh, Lopez seemed to think it was all on the line entering the 12th. But the three ringside judges, my buddy Bobby Hoyle, the always correct Steve Weisfeld, and Ruben Carrion awarded him 10, 9, and 8 rounds, respectively. Um, Gonzalez, I think it's clear now that he is just one of those guys, and there's plenty of them, who are just at that level to be just good enough to be competitive in defeat against right. the top six in the division. But, boy, Lopez is on a very nice run now, um, you know in the fight before he knocked out Michael Conlon, he beat Josh Warrington. So he's really putting himself in a very nice position um, right now. Uh, as for the co-main, uh, look, we all know that Zayas is a talent, uh, but this did no harm at all in terms of announcing his place as a welterweight contender. He's not really a knockout artist, but he just beat up and beat down Valenzuela, dropped him twice in the first round. Second knockdown was a little controversial because... Uh, their feet had gotten tangled and Valenzuela was probably on his way down before Zayas hit him, but immaterial ultimately in the end. Zayas was just beating him up, uh, cut him open on the nose in the third round. Nasty cut too, nasty enough for referee Mark Nelson to bring him to the uh, ringside position twice in the fourth round. And by the fifth, I think Mark was looking for an opportunity to stop the fight. And um, when Zayas knocked him back with a jab and then followed up with an uppercut, that was as much as uh, Nelson wanted to see. That was a very good win, I thought, for young Xander Zayas. 
not too many fights to look forward to next weekend, but there are a couple of some interest. Um, on DAZN from Orlando, uh, Richardson Hitchens meets Jose Cepeda in a 10-round 140-pound bout. And in London on ESPN+, Plus, Zhang Jilai and Joe Joyce meet in a rematch of a heavyweight contest that Zhang won first time out by a bludgeoning stoppage. Uh, Eric, can Joyce turn it around in the rematch? And will he? And any thoughts while you're at it on Cepeda and Hitchens? So I'll give thoughts on both in the context of betting odds, because uh, they're interesting here. Um, I was surprised to see Hitchens such a big favorite over Zapeta. Um, I'm seeing him at minus 450 and Chon Zapeta at plus 320. Now, Hitchens is a very talented, promising prospect, but he hasn't faced anyone on Zapeta's level yet. And those odds really seem to assume Zapeta is on the downside just because he got his ass kicked by Regis Progre. And maybe he is, but, you know, Progray also happens to be an elite fighter. Uh, so, I don't know. Look, do, do I favor Hitchens? Yeah, I, I think I do. But I, I, I'm either betting on Zapata or staying away on this one because there's no way Hitchens should be minus 450, in my view. That's a terrible price on him, I, I think. Um, but, you know, on paper, to me, this is a very interesting crossroads fight. And um, Zhang Joyce, too is every bit as intriguing, and the odds there actually reflect it. Uh, they they have it as a fight with no underdog. Uh, Zhang minus 120, Joyce minus 105, basically a coin flip. Um, seems about right to me, because I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen here. It mostly comes down to one question. Did Joyce's team teach him how to avoid Zhang's straight left hand? How to counter it or nullify it or something uh if so he can absolutely get his revenge although i would also expect Zhang to have a plan b if joyce has made adjustments uh but you know if joyce has made good adjustments there i guess i'll make him a 55 45 favorite and if he hasn't if the left hand is still scoring on him with regularity, he's at least about an 80-20 dog, uh, which I think means I favor Zhang overall to repeat the result. Um, but I'll note that I've been wrong about Joyce on just about every possible occasion. Um, I expected him to ha handle Zhang the first time. Didn't expect him to beat Daniel Dubois. So, you know, yep. maybe maybe fade my pick on this one and go with Joyce because Eileen Zhang uh, or I don't stay away, whatever you do. Uh, remember to bet responsibly and only risk a number of pizzas you can afford to lose. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Last week on the podcast, we spoke with Jesus Ramos Jr. Well, Eric spoke with Jesus Ramos Jr., who yes. will be one half of the co-main event on the September 30th uh, pay-per-view uh, headlined by Canelo against Charlo. Um, he will be facing Erickson Lubin in what promises to be an exciting clash. And joining us this week is Lubin's trainer, Kevin Cunningham. Kevin. Thank you for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure's all mine. Uh, so two fights ago, we saw Erickson lose by knockout to Sebastian Fundora in a fight of the year contender. Last time out, he dominated Luis Arias in perhaps one of the finest performances of his career. Was it hard to build Erickson back up mentally after the Fundora fight, or, or was he able to move on from it reasonably quickly? Well, I mean... I mean, I stopped the fight, so I wouldn't say he lost by knockout. You know, I stopped the fight because of uh, obvious uh, facial damage to his face, and and uh, uh, but he, you know, he wanted to continue, and he was leading on all judges' scorecards. But you know, uh, yeah, at the time he's twenty six years old, and, and 
you know, with all of the swelling to his face, you, you, you don't know what's going on behind the swelling. So, you know, I thought it was just best that, uh, that he didn't take any further damage and he lives to fight another day. So, uh, and he came in after the, after that fight, he came back after a, a couple of months off, came back into the gym and was, you know, right back to normal. And, uh, he went to camp for the Cuba areas fight and, um, fought the fight. And, uh, he was the first person to ever stop Cuba areas and Cuba areas has fought some major names in the game, but he showed that, uh, you know, he's still the same old hammer. So, so were even you impressed by the performance against Arias? Did he maybe ex- exceed even what you were expecting uh, for him bouncing back from the Fundora fight? No, I wouldn't say that. I, I think he did what we expected him to do in that fight. Erickson's a big step up on paper for Jesus Ramos. But, you know, I assume that, you know, he and his people are taking the fight because they look at Erickson as a big name opponent who they can beat and sort of add to to their resume and help him up the ladder does it act as a sort of motivator that a young kid like jesus is presumably looking at erickson as someone to you know build their reputation on oh for sure i think i think that hammer is looking at this fight as uh, a fight to to um show that you know he's still one of the elite guys in the 154 pound division and uh He's motivated to show that, uh, you know, he's nobody's stepping stone. And, uh, you know, he's still there to uh, win a fight like this on a stage like this and move on to bigger and better things. I mean, he's only lost a couple of fights and that happens, right? I mean, especially when you fight good fighters. And it feels as if, you know, there's something there now for 150 four pounds if Jamel has moved up then there's an opportunity there for Hammer to really make a statement isn't there and make a claim for himself in that division oh yeah yeah for sure for sure you have uh, uh, guys like uh, uh, Terrence Crawford Earl Spence who's joining the division now Um, so there's still a lot of excitement in the 154 pound division so uh, he's motivated to to go out and make a statement in this fight and, and, and move on to potentially fighting for a title or fighting big name fights, you know, for big paydays. And he's highly motivated and, 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 and this is a great opportunity. So what do you think of Jesus Ramos? What, what are the biggest challenges for Hammer to overcome in this fight? Well, I mean, I think Jesus Ramos is a good, young, solid, strong fighter. So, um, you know, you have to, be on point you have to you know be focused and on point and and be on top of your game he's a guy that you have to be on top of your game to beat him so um that's the type of fight that you're going to have at this level most opponents are going to be the type of guys that if if you're not if you don't come to the ring on your a game it could be a problem that night so and i and that's exactly how we look at jesus ramos is there any particular fight of Ramos's that you've spent extra time studying, uh, looking for looking for things you can exploit, or or or? And do you do you and Hammer watch tape together of his opponents, or is that something you do and report back to him? You know, I, I pretty much do a lot of um, 
breaking down the footage on opponents and putting the game plan and strategy together. And, and we go to the GM and work on the game plan and strategy. But I think he's, he's watched tape on, he's watched footage on Ramos also. So, I mean, there's no really real fights in particular. I mean, obviously I looked at his fights with soft paws and, mm. you know, to see if uh, there's anything there uh, that we could uh, see that we could, you know, expose, I mean, you know, from a softball standpoint. But other than that, I've watched pretty much all of his fights that, you know, that that's available. So you guys are the co-main event on September 30th. And I'd like to ask your opinions on, on the main event, Canelo against Jamel. Uh, Canelo's starting as the favorite. Um, how do you feel about this matchup? And are you one of those who feels that Jamel has a really good chance here? Yeah, I, I actually... I'm, I'm, I I really feel good about Jamel's chances in this fight. Uh, Jamel's a, a he's a he's a he's a fighter. He's he, he's and he's confident in in himself in his abilities, and I think he has all the attributes to be successful in this fight. I mean, he's got the height. He's he's got athleticism. Uh, he's he's got a good punch. He's got good power. He's starting to, to really uh, – his footwork is – he's taking his footwork to another level. And uh, I think he has a really good chance of beating Canelo. Is that the key for him? Use his length, use his movement, just not let Canelo get set in front of him? Yeah, that's part of it. But, uh, you know, uh, Canelo's the shorter guy, so obviously – he has to get in in his range to do what he wants to do. But Canelo's clever. He's experienced. Great fighter. He's, he's one of the best to ever do it. So Jamel's got to really step up to this challenge. But I think he has all the tangibles and the physical attributes to, to pull this off. And I think he's got the mindset and the, and the fire and desire and hunger that 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 you would need to go in and pull off an upset like this, and, and I like his chances. All right. Uh, well, one man who's being mentioned as a possible opponent for either Canelo or Jamel, whoever wins, is a guy you already mentioned, Terence Crawford. I want to go back a, a couple months. Were, were you surprised at how easily he handled Errol Spence, and, and how do you feel uh, Crawford would fare against either Charlo or Canelo? Well, I wasn't surprised that uh, Bud won the fight. Um, but I was surprised at how easily and how he dominated Earl. Right. Uh, just, I mean, I looked at it as a 50-50 fight. So, um, but I knew Bud was special. And I think that Bud, if he fights the winner of Canelo Charlo, He's he's got an excellent chance at beating either one of those guys. He's that special of a fighter. So, you know, that's how I feel about Terrence Crawford. It seems like you are a boxing observer who, not to say that weight classes don't matter, they exist for a reason, of course, but you seem to believe, uh, as I do, that people over overrate size dif difference a bit sometimes and guys can move up a, a weight class or two and beat bigger guys uh am i right to sort of infer that from what you're saying that you're you're a believer that 
a, a great smaller fighter has a perfectly good chance against a, a great slightly bigger fighter. Yeah, and, and you use the right word. I mean, because I don't just think a smaller fighter can beat a bigger fighter. I think a special fighter with a special skill set and 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 the the proper boxing IQ takes the size advantage away. Mm. If you're special, if you're a specially gifted fighter, size really doesn't matter when you're when you're specially gifted the way Terrence Crawford is, the way uh, uh, Floyd Mayweather was, the way a Pennell Whitaker was. So, I mean, size doesn't play a major role when you're dealing with guys that are specially gifted like that. And Terrence Crawford is special like that. Yeah. I'd like to change the pace just a little bit, if you don't mind. And I'd like to get your thoughts on somebody who passed away recently who you knew very well, which is Coach Mike Stafford. Um, I met Mike quite a few times and found him just an incredibly nice man. And I wondered if you could, if you'd like to take a little bit of time to let listeners know what it was about Mike that made him such a good coach and such a good person. Well, Mike Stafford, what, what made, what made Mike Stafford so special was the fact that he had one of the biggest hearts I've ever known. And I mean, he really took special interest in the kids. And, uh, you know, he built some of the best amateurs and some of the, some of our best Olympians and some of our best world champions from the ground up. And, uh, you know, he really, really, really loved being in the gym with kids and, 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 and he just loved the sport of boxing and just loved helping young people. So that yeah. was, that was what was special about Mike Stafford to me. He just loved helping disadvantaged youth and giving them an opportunity and trying to show them, um, you know, a way out of their circumstances. And that's what made him special to me. I mean, in a way, you two strike me very much as two peas from the same pod in that I can never see you being one of these trainers who's just like a trainer for hire, right? I always get the impression from outside that making fighters... It's, it's you're not just about teaching guys how to throw hooks or jabs. You're about helping them as people, I think. And you like to be, you like to help develop them from an early point and, and, and help them grow as human beings. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And that, and that kind of, that kind of gets me in trouble with the business of boxing sometimes because it's not just about the business of boxing for me. If I get involved with a young man, I'm 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 all the way in with him and I want to see him be the best person that he can be as well as the best fighter that he can be. So, you know, that that's that's who I am. One one last thing, Kevin. I saw on your Instagram a picture of you and Mike Tyson and uh, you wrote that you've known him since 1984. Uh can you give us the story of of when you first met Mike Tyson? Yeah, I met Mike Tyson in my hometown, St. Louis, Missouri in 1984 at the national golden gloves and uh you know you know we met and 
all the fighters were, you know, you, you know, they were there in town for the National Golden Gloves. So we we had a little conversation, and and you know, I remember how Mike was just going through the tournament, knocking everybody out, and you know, we used to joke and laugh about how he was moving through the tournament. And we talked about that a few months ago here in West Palm Beach. So, you know, we got to get kick out of that. <laughs> so in, in 84, when he showed up in St. Louis, there was already some buzz around him. People were talking about this, this Mike Tyson kid, this heavyweight. Uh, he, he had a, a, a bit of a spotlight on him already when, when you met him. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I remember the buzz starting around Mike, and back in the, what was it, uh, was it 81 or 82 or something when he was in the Junior Olympics, Colorado Springs at the Junior Olympics, and he was knocking everybody out. So, yeah, it was definitely buzz around him at the National Golden Gloves that year. Hey, Kevin, look, we really appreciate you putting some time aside for us. I know it's super busy in the build-up to a big fight, but uh, I'm really grateful to you for uh, for coming on the podcast Thank you so very much. All the best to you and Hammer on September 30th. And I hope we get to talk to you again. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And anytime you guys need me, I'm here. Thank you thanks so, so much, much Kevin. Our thanks again to Kevin. I really like him. He, he's an, yeah. an excellent interview. He gives well-considered answers. And, um, you know, I'm kind of thinking in there as he was talking, if my son were to want to be a boxer, now this is the most extreme of hypotheticals, but but if Eli <laughs> wanted to start boxing, I would feel great about sending him to Kevin Cunningham. He's uh, yeah. obviously a, a trainer who really cares about his fighters and and a, a no-nonsense guy, uh, which, which made for a great change of pace on our podcast, which is almost entirely nonsense. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as I confessed to you beforehand, I was mildly intimidated before we did the interview because right. I don't know him, but been around him a lot, obviously. And he does have this reputation of being a very serious, very intense, as you said, no nonsense kind of guy. And I was just I was a little worried that he was just going to have nothing to do with our stupidity. But, but like <laughs> I said, it was it was great. He treated us as if we were serious human beings and gave us really good answers. And like you, I came away really quite liking the guy. Yeah, we, we are the ultimate no, no nonsense guys. <laughs> we, nothing but nonsense here. Nothing but nonsense. So let's get on yeah, with the nonsense. <laughs> All right. You ready to play the fight game, Kieran? Absolutely not. <laughs> well, you're playing it anyway. Okay. See? Nonsense. There we go. Uh, here is your first clue this week. All right. This first round knockout was the centerpiece of a campaign that earned the winning fighter the Ring Magazine's Fighter of the Year Award. Though the BWAA disagreed that year and gave it to Floyd Mayweather, as did Dan Raphael of ESPN, who actually was of ESPN at the time. First round knockout. But didn't win fighter. One ring magazine fighter. Of the right, year. right. He won ring magazine fighter of the year uh, for the year in which he scored this first round knockout. But the BWAA and Dan gave it to Floyd Mayweather. So sometime between, let me see when did Dan become the ESPN, 2005 and 2020, something like that. That is correct. It is somewhere in that band of years. Yes. And Floyd could have been fighter of the year just about any bloody year. <laughs> right. That that only helps you so much. Who was who scored an impressive first round knockout? It's, Sergio Martinez didn't. It was a second round knockout against Paul William. Right? Yeah, so, it was a second round knockout. Oh, this feels like one that I could get in one, and I don't. And I'm gonna. 
but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> so you're giving up and uh, moving on to Clue 2 then? Yeah, I, I think this is probably one where a lot of people are like, come on, dude, this is obvious. Um, Manny Pacquiao didn't score a first round KO in that time that would have been. Yeah. No, he didn't. He didn't get any first rounders. Nope. Oh, I'm going to be really annoyed. <laughs> it's not, I'll just say, it's not like, uh, it's not, uh, I don't people are, don't think people are screaming at you that this is obvious. It, it may be, I will agree with your first statement that it's gettable in one, but it's not, it's not like, oh my God, I can't believe you're failing to think of this or anything like that. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's move on to two. Okay. It was an upset KO1 to win a lineal title. And the winning fighter would defend that title successfully nine times over a five and a half year reign. Is it... No, no, I was going to say, was it Nanito? But it wouldn't be. But I don't think Nanito's got a first round. Nope. KO, so it's not Nanito. Nope. Not, and it's not Manny. It is not Nanito. It is not Manny. <laughs> well, uh, th this counts as like a little extra mini clue. Not really, but you gave me an extra mini clue last time. So I'll just say it's a fighter I don't think about all that often these days. Oh, interesting. So it's it's not like a Nonito or a Manny or, or someone, but it was someone who was named Ring Magazine Fighter of the Year. Hmm. I guess I'm going to have to go to a third clue. Okay. Um, as I look at this clue, I don't know that it will help you much. I think I think clue, this is one of those ones where, again, I think clue four, you're for sure going to get it. But clue three may not help. But there's a lot of information in here. Here goes with clue three. The winning fighter entered this fight with a record of 20 and one and ended his career in 2018 with a record of 29, two and one, while the losing fighter came in 31 and two and finished his career in 2019 with a record of 36 and 5. So helping you Give get closer to pinpointing the exact year, perhaps. Do you mind hitting me with that again? Yeah, sure. We'll give it to you one more time. The winning fighter entered this fight with a record of 20 and 1 and ended his career in 2018 with a record of 29, 2 and 1, while the losing fighter came in 31 and 2 and finished his career in 2019 with a record of 36 and 5. So between that 2005 to 2020 time frame you initially isolated, you should now be able to zoom in quite a bit on what years are possible here. Right, right. So clearly toward the latter part of that um, significantly. Uh, I'm still not getting it. I'll, I'll interject and say not so much toward the latter part of that. That You can cut off the latter part of that. If he if if these guys retired in 2018 and 19 and the winner had a five and a half year reign. Right. But right. But it sounds like it was. Oh, right. Yes. I'm not getting it. <laughs> That's okay. okay. I, again, okay. okay. It's uh, these are uh, these are names that are not exactly at the forefront of your mind coming into this week's fight game. I don't think. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know who I've been thinking about. <laughs> True. But apparently not. Right. Had you been thinking about these fighters, you would have gotten it by now. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Okay. 
All right. I do think this next clue will give it to you. Were you ready for clue four? Yeah, yeah. Okay. This fight in Montreal for the light heavyweight title pitted uh, a champion coming off a loss at a lower weight to a Hall of Fame-bound fighter against a challenger coming off a win over Darnell Boone, the only man to beat him previously. And you got it. Just a few words into that. What do you got? Adonis Stevenson and Chad Dawson. That is correct. Adonis Stevenson, KO1, Chad Dawson, June 8th, 2013 at the Bell Center. Uh, I thought Chad Dawson was going to be a really good boxer. I, I mean, he was a good boxer. Yeah, he was. Really be more, and I don't know how much that, that going down in weight and fighting Andre, because that was the fight before Adonis, right? Was Correct. When he went down on, okay, that just seemed to mess him up. Yep. And he was never quite right after that, was he? Right. No. Yeah, that was the turned out in retrospect, the beginning of the end for him. And uh, and meanwhile, the beginning of a what I thought was a shockingly long and successful reign for Adonis Stevenson in that uh, I remembered on, on Ring Theory at the time, uh, Detloff and I had some sort of little side wager over how many successful defenses Stevenson would make because I considered him becoming the champ a little bit fluky. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he set the line at like six and I was like, oh, way under. And then he went on to make nine successful defenses. So uh, I was I was pretty wrong about him. Also enjoyed interviewing him. He was uh, yeah. uh, um, quite the character. So anyway, but what would have been clue five? Had so, yes, clue five. Uh, the winner had a fine physique, although maybe he wasn't quite as well built as his first name implied. While for the loser, this was a bad result indeed. Ah, very good. Yes. Stop short of working the words adorable Adrian into the clue (laughs) alluding to his first name. But uh, yeah, I I, this was one where, again, you're not thinking of these fighters. It was possible to get it in one if these fighters were kind of on your mind. But if not, it's very easy to get all the way to clue four before thinking of who I was talking about. You know what's interesting? What actually I think made it harder for me I had no idea that Stevenson won Ring Magazine Fighter of the Year, and I would never have thought about Adonis Stevenson winning right. fight. Like, had that clue not existed, I might mm. have inconceivably got there. <laughs> right. But there was, I had no idea he won Ring Magazine Fighter of the Year. Yeah, I'm not sure if I knew other than stumbling uh, upon it when researching this, because this was after I had stopped having any involvement with the ring. He did. He went 4-0 and that year. It was Boone, and then this win, and then two title defenses. So it, it, he... I assume volume had something to do with it, whereas I don't have Floyd's 2013 in front of me, but I assume Floyd only fought like twice that year. Um, and so it was probably one of those kind of deals where it was, you know, Floyd seemed to get it from most outlets, but you could make a case for the guy who won the title by first round knockout and fought four times. All right. Huh. Well, there you go. There you go. That was All a good right. one. I like that one. Good. All right. Let's um, look at the week's news. And our main event is an update on a story from last week. We reported a week ago that Frank Martin, who we've already mentioned once on this podcast, had pulled out of an about with Shakur Stevenson, who we've already mentioned several times on this podcast. It now appears that Stevenson has a new opponent uh, with our friend Dan Raphael of ESPN, uh, reporting, who we've also mentioned on this podcast, uh, reporting that he seems likely to face Edwin De Los Santos in Las Vegas on November 16th. That's a Thursday fight to lead into the Formula One Grand Prix in Vegas that weekend with Emmanuel Navarrete versus Robson Concesau as a co-main. Uh, Eric, what do you think about that as a card? Damn fine card. Uh, I like the timing of it, uh, although I might have tried Wednesday instead of Thursday since there's NFL football on Thursday and no sport does great ratings when up against a live NFL game. Uh, but the fight should certainly get 
real strong media attention being in Las Vegas that week. And um, I'm not sure Shakur is in any easier against De Los Santos than he would have been against Frank Martin. Um, a different style, although you never know which De Los Santos you're going to get. He, he's mostly been a puncher, but he played the role of boxer against Joseph Adorno last time out. Obviously, Stevenson's a massive favorite here, but De Los Santos presents a threat, I would say. And um, Navarrete is a big favorite over Conceição, but Navarrete can sometimes have letdowns. If he doesn't get all the way up for this fight, Conceição is is just good enough to take advantage. So basically, two solid fights, albeit with clear favorites, on an ESPN card that should get nice visibility, and the bonus of maybe we're building towards Stevenson versus Navarrete, which uh, I would not complain about one bit, uh, other than the fact that if it happened, it would probably be a pay-per-view, which I might complain about somewhat. But um, then again, it's probably time to see how Shakur does on pay-per-view. But all of that is getting way, way ahead of myself uh, for now. November 16th, potentially very good night of entertainment for boxing fans. Uh, A quick flip through the rest of the week's news headlines. Uh, Juan Francisco Estrada and Kazuto Ioka are in talks for a 115-pound unification bout in Japan on New Year's Eve. Heavyweight champion Tyson Fury gave an interview to the Daily Mail newspaper in which he said unifying against Alexander Usyk, quote, doesn't mean shit to him, and that he is, quote, probably looking to fight John Jones in a boxing fight after he is done with his sideshow fight with Francis Ngannou next month. That sound you hear is our entire listenership throwing up in their mouths at once. Uh, Continuing on, Ryan Garcia is reportedly starting to focus on a comeback fight following his April loss to Tank Davis, with Pedro Campa being talked about as a possible opponent. Joe Cordina is set to defend the 130-pound belt he won in a brutal battle with Shavkatson Rakhimov in April. His opponent will be Edward Vasquez, and that fight will take place in Monaco on November 4th. Finally, some truly terrible news. On Friday night in Tijuana, Mexico, trainer Diego Arrua suffered a fatal heart attack between rounds 9 and 10 of a bout between Sabrina Perez and Sky Nicholson, making that even more tragic. Perez was not just his fighter, but also his wife. I'm not quite sure what one is supposed to say following that awful news, but uh, Karen, please do your best. Just deal with the good stuff first. I love the idea of Estrada Ioka. Love it. It says everything about both guys that they would voluntarily make that fight and everything about Estrada that he would go to Japan for it. I hope that comes off a terrific fight. If it does and win or lose, I don't think there is any doubt anymore about Estrada's Hall of Fame candidacy. He's sailing in. Um, Fury's interview was disconcerting. Um, To add a few more quotes, he said of Usyk that, quote, He's a little Ukrainian dosser. <laughs> He's just a foreign person who doesn't speak English, so you can't really sell him. Uh, um, Fury also said he doesn't care about the criticism he's getting for facing Ngannou because, quote, I'm getting a fucking big bag. So I won't <laughs> bad when I'm cashing my check-in. I won't care when I'm eating ice cream and marshmallows all day, which, by the way, editorial comment is what he appears to be doing yeah. while eating for Ngannou, um, and drinking pina coladas. Everyone famous has haters. I'm sure Van Gogh had his haters too, but I can't <laughs> name any of them today, so that just shows you. Let's so allow that to sink in. <laughs> um, obviously, Fury changes his position on things several times a minute. I'm not sure he really knows what's going on in his head half the time. And subsequently, his US promoter, um, uh, Bob Arum, uh, claimed again that Fury Usyk does remain doable and possibly even likely, but 
looking at the state of Fury right now, you have to indeed wonder if at the moment he does give a shit about anything. You wonder if he's already in that post-Pacquiao Floyd Mayweather zone, realizing right. you can earn gobs of money from facing people who have no hope against them, then why not just do that? But he also says things to provoke, and it's entirely possible he's just doing that. Um, I think sometimes he just says the first thing that comes into his head. But um, yeah, that's none of that's terribly encouraging. Um, uh, final story. I I just don't know what to say. I I mean, thinking about it from Perez's point of view, how traumatic must it be for your trainer to become ill during your fight? Right. For your trainer to die during your fight must be unbelievable. For your husband to die ringside while you're... I mean, my, I just can't even imagine. You know, to think about, like, Perez would have walked to the ring that evening really hopeful that she could get a win against Sky Nicholson and really do wonders for her career. And she left it after losing the fight and with her trainer and her husband dead. I just... I can't even imagine my very deepest sympathies to her and, and RIP to Arua. So just terrible news. Eric... Take us home with something more uplifting. Yeah, let's uh, let's try to go something a little brighter to to end with. Uh, let's do the top five countdown, Karen. Uh, last week you assigned me a top five challenge, spinning off of what Jermel Charlo is attempting to do against Canelo, which Kevin Cunningham thinks he may be able to pull off. Incidentally, uh, the top five wins by fighters moving up significantly in weight. Typically, two weight classes or more, but I'm not restricted to that rule as we discussed last week. This was a tough list to place in an order because there are so many criteria to consider. How much do you weigh the quality of the opponent beaten, the <laughs> style in which they beat the opponent, how much weight they moved up, whether it was the first fight at the new weight or just the first major fight at the new weight. A lot to consider here. I ended up with nine fights that I strongly considered. And of those, I ended up with two fights that I initially expected to have on my list that ended up outside the top five. So just sort of a warning that if you don't hear a fight you were expecting to hear, uh, it'll probably be in the honorable mention. I was expecting to hear it too, and then I ended up not putting it in my Mm. top five. Um, At number five, I have a fight I didn't think of initially, and even after I thought of it, I figured it would be a little bit outside the top five, but the more I thought about it, the more highly I thought of it. So at number five, Maybe a mild surprise to some, June 10th, 2006, Bernard Hopkins' dominant decision win over Antonio Tarver. Hopkins spent his whole career at middleweight, we're talking more than 15 straight years at that point, always making 160. His previous fight was a debatable decision loss in the rematch with Jermaine Taylor for the middleweight title, and he moved straight up, two divisions, skipped super middle, went to light heavy to take on the champ, the lineal champ, a pound-for-poundish level fighter, and just dominated Tarver, scored a knockdown, won 10 of 12 rounds on all cards, a brilliant performance in a true, pure two-division leap, kind of similar on paper to what Jermel Charlo is trying to do. I have this at number five. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I didn't actually come up with a list per se, just like a bunch of um, thoughts about ones that had occurred to me. And interestingly, this sort of, to follow on from your comment, it sort of went into my head and then flew out of it again, almost when I was setting the challenge. Mm. And yeah, that's an interesting one. And, and it was a very good performance. All I, what I remember about this is, I don't know why, 
what prompted me to do that is I remember thinking that Bernard was going to do that, not quite as dominant as it was, but uh, as he was. Right. And I do remember thinking, you know what, I think he's going to win this fight. And mm. I can't remember what made me think that. And the other thing I vaguely remember, I might be getting the details wrong about this, is that this was around his 40th birthday and he promised his mom he was going to stop fighting at oh, 40. Right. Yes. Do you remember right. that? And yeah. So we we're like, this Bernard's last fight? And well, no. <laughs> right yes uh certain promises are made to be broken Uh, he did not keep that one but you're right he did at some point promise his mother he would retire by 40 he was either 40 or maybe 41 at the time of this fight yeah yeah um yeah had quite a few more fights after this i don't think his mom or he even could have anticipated how good he would still be well into his mid-40s so there's that all right this next one I really struggled with where to place it. Could have been as high as three, could have been outside the top five. What it has going for it is that the fighter who was defeated is almost certainly the best fighter anyone ever defeated moving up two divisions. That fighter, the one who lost, is Sugar Ray Leonard. He, of course, was the welterweight champ. He was defeated on June 20th, 1980 at Olympic Stadium in Montreal by Roberto Duran, who was absolutely masterful in completing the leap from lightweight champ to welterweight champ. The problem, the reason this isn't in serious consideration for a top two spot on my list, is Duran had already been a welterweight for two years. Uh, His previous eight fights, he weighed between 142 and 151, and at least one of them was meaningful, a near shutout of Carlos Palomino in June 1979. I don't think I need to remind anyone of the details of Duran Leonard 1, you know, classic fight, probably the best win of Duran's Hall of Fame career. But because it was his ninth fight since leaving Lightweight behind, I really don't know where to place it. Um, I'm putting it at number four and will accept arguments that I have it either too high or too low. Yeah, I agree with every every sentiment there. And it was perhaps, I don't know, perhaps in hindsight I could have made it easier or maybe it would have made it harder by saying, no, it does have to be a direct, a direct jump up. Right. Uh, but yeah. Because that that is the complicating factor. And you know, it's kind of funny. In my head, prior to actually thinking about this as a challenge, I don't I I hadn't appreciated how long Duran had been at Welterweight right. before moving. I don't think I'd realized that. I think I think I knew that he didn't jump right up from lightweight, but I thought it was just like a fight or two. Um because in terms of the actual performance, this has to be right up there. Um uh, I mean he he really just outsiked and outfought not just the Hall of Famer, but an all-time great. Yeah. And, and added him his first defeat. But yes, that given that the whole issue is about jumping up and wait to do it, those couple of years do take the shine off a little bit. And although I didn't come up with a real list, it was kind of in my head a little bit. I put him, I think, in my head as as being an honorable mention for that very reason. But yeah. uh, the performance was so great, you can't really argue with it. Right. Okay, uh, my number three also has a little bit of an asterisk, but I consider it a smaller asterisk for this particular list than Duran Leonard. It, too, involves a jump from lightweight to welterweight. And in this case, it was a pure jump. No interim fights in the 140s. In fact, the fighter leaping up had only one fight at 135. He'd been a junior lightweight just two fights before this. I am, of course, talking about Manny Pacquiao turning Larry Merchant's wacky idea into reality, taking on Oscar De La Hoya on December 6th, 2008, and just 
beating the absolute snot out of him until Oscar's corner threw in the towel after round eight. The asterisk here, of course, is that Oscar looked so bad in the fight that Manny lost some of the credit for beating him, and it was instead chalked up to Oscar being washed and or having dropped down in weight too far. And that's a legit reason for an asterisk. We'll never know whether Manny's speed would have similarly overwhelmed the same version of Oscar that Mayweather fought a year earlier. It may be that Oscar wasn't actually too terribly washed and Pacquiao was just a nightmare for him, but I tend to think this warrants at least a partial asterisk. Uh, Still, remarkable performance in making a huge weight jump by Pacquiao. This is number three on my list. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I remember the, I was at that fight and I remember the build up to it and I was just convinced that Oscar was going to win, even if he wasn't quite Oscar anymore, just because of, it was just such an enormous leap to, to ask of, of Manny Pacquiao. And yeah, I mean, the best you can say is it's not his fault <laughs> right. the, that Oscar was how he was. Um, it's funny, I was thinking about this fight a little bit this past week because Oscar during um, uh, an interview had just talked about how he um, he knew going in that he was going to lose because Edmund Valero had been kicking his ass in sparring. Mm. Um, and he just, and he just didn't have it, but yeah, I, I, I just, I, I kind of think it should be included because it's not Manny's fault that Oscar was who he was uh, or the, in the condition that he was in. It was a huge, huge undertaking. I think a lot of, a lot of us thought that, that it was just a step too far. And I think Manny Pacquiao deserves a lot of credit for doing what he did. Yeah. I, I will give myself a little pat on the back here that I was among the few voices saying, I think this is a, a, a pretty, I, I, don't, I didn't pick Pacquiao to win. I don't pat myself on the back that hard, but I was saying, I think this is a competitive fight. I think Manny has a real chance here. So uh, oh. I'm not right often. So when I am, I have to make sure to pause and uh, <laughs> congratulate myself for it. Um, I feel much better about my top two and their placement than I do about everything we've discussed on the list so far. Um, at number two, Like Duran and Hopkins, the winner is someone we or you have interviewed at the Hall of Fame. He was an all-time great light heavyweight who surely would have gotten into the Hall on his 175-pound resume alone, but then he went and made history and on September 21st, 1985, became the first light heavyweight champ to capture the heavyweight title, winning a narrow upset 15-round decision over previously undefeated champ Larry Holmes. I'm talking, of course, about Michael Spinks. And this was a two-division jump since the cruiserweight division was first created in 1980, but Spinks skipped right over it, hired Mackie Shillstone to bulk up to 199 and three-quarter pounds, still gave away just over 20 pounds to Holmes, but won the fight. A remarkable achievement, to my eyes, the second greatest win ever for a fighter making a substantial leap in weight. My embarrassment is that it was not until this morning when I was going over my notes and preparing for everything that I suddenly remembered that this deserved to be on the list. Like for some reason, it just hadn't occurred to me when I was thinking about it. And and it made me think that Michael Spinks has almost gotten a bit forgotten, yeah. um, given how good he was uh, over over the years. Um perhaps because most people's memory of him is that final fight of his yes um i don't know if that's been a factor or not but uh and then he, he's you know been fairly quiet ever since but excellent suggestion yeah and i'm embarrassed that it i very nearly forgot it completely <laughs> i think you're absolutely right in the assessment that 
especially for the at least for the non-hardcore boxing fan who wasn't paying close attention to sport to the sport in the 80s he is mostly remembered for getting flattened in 90 seconds by Mike Tyson, which is does a real disservice to his legacy because he was a an all-time great light heavyweight and, and did something remarkable against Larry Holmes. Yep. For my number one, we are taking a trip way, way back in the time machine, all the way back to May 31st, 1938, the all-time most famous weight jumper, making his most remarkable leap, the reigning featherweight champion of the world, Henry Armstrong, going all the way up to challenge the welterweight champion of the world, who happened to be a Hall of Famer, Barney Ross, and beating him handily, winning between 10 and 12 rounds out of 15 on each of the judges' scorecards. Armstrong would later, while reigning at 126 and 147 simultaneously, also capture the lightweight title. Uh, But on this night, as far as division limits go, he was moving up 21 pounds, a 16.7% weight increase. Uh, these days, fighters typically move up 3 or 4% at a time. This was a 16.7% increase, and Armstrong pulled it off against an all-time great champion who had won 21 straight coming in. Now, yes, Armstrong had had a bunch of non-title lightweight fights prior to this, so you could argue he wasn't really jumping all the way from feather to welter in one fell swoop. But he was still the featherweight champ when he did this. Just insane. Hammer and Hank hammers his way to number one on my list. Yeah, this is the only one that I felt like I I said, while I didn't put down a list, I figured, well, Henry Armstrong has to be number one with this. It was one thing that I felt uh, had to be pretty clear. Yeah, you mentioned he'd had a few welterweight um, fights beforehand. Knowing Henry Armstrong, without looking up his record, he probably had 12 the previous month. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. I, and, and actually, I don't think he had had any at welterweight. They were all at lightweight, so above feather. But even for this fight, I think he weighed like 133 as he challenged for the welterweight title. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely phenomenal. And honestly, God, every every time you just... I continue to be amazed. Like every time you read, one reads or writes or talks about Henry Armstrong, I just continue to be all the more amazed by what a remarkable boxer he was. Yeah. Um, for honorable mentions, I had four others I considered, and then three that I didn't really consider putting on the list that are nevertheless worth calling some attention to. Um, the ones that I considered, uh, Mosley versus Oscar in their first fight, not the not the one you were at, but their first fight, jumping from lightweight to welter, and it might have made the list if not for Mosley having two welterweight tune-up fights first against Wilfredo Rivera in an underrated thriller, by the way, uh, and and Willie Wise. So that one's just outside my top five. Uh, Roy Jones's jump up from light heavyweight to beat John Ruiz for a heavyweight belt. It finishes outside my top five because Ruiz was certainly a cherry pick. Roy was taking on the belt holder he believed he could beat and not the true heavyweight champ. Um, now, Oya in a way went straight from 108 to 115, skipping flyweight to beat Omar Narvaez and knocking Narvaez out in two rounds. A hell of a win, but Narvaez wasn't a great enough opponent to quite get in a way on my list. Um, And the last one I considered, how about welterweight champ Emil Griffith moving up, skipping over the 154-pound division that did exist at the time and beating Dick Tiger for the middleweight title by narrow decision. Um, So those were my honorable mentions and then three others outside that top nine but i think just worth mentioning leonard over marvin Hagler. um he had snagged a belt at 154 at one point but 
then came back down to welterweight. He was basically moving from welter to middle after a long retirement. Uh, Vinny Paz coming back from his accident to go straight from 140 to 154 and win a title, although the opponent was uh, Gilbert DeLay, not exactly a household name, as much as the Miles Teller movie may want us to believe he was a household name. Um, And uh, also worth a mention, Mike McCallum, who pretty much went straight from 160 to 175, Mm. but didn't really have a signature win at 175 to consider for this list. So Leonard, Paz, McCallum, I didn't seriously consider any of them, but they were all sort of interesting cases. The other one that I uh, um, thought about, but I think it's just not, it's sort of disqualified by the fact that he moved up and away, lost the fight by DQ, and then two fights later won uh, the heavyweight championship. I was thinking of Bob Fitzsimmons, Mm. who was a middleweight champion. He went up to heavyweight. The heavyweight title was a little bit fractured at at that time because I think Jim Corbett had retired. Um, And he was in the, uh, he had that fight against um, uh, Tom Sharkey that he got disqualified from by Wyatt Earp and then won a fight and then became the first person to beat Corbett. And like, that's a pretty impressive but is he the fact that he had those other two fights as that and he lost one technically, even though he should have done whether that disqualifies him or not. Um, but that yeah. was the He's, one that kind of comes to mind. I probably should have considered him and, and put him somewhere at like he, that could be the number 10 ish sort of like mm. honorable mention, but not worthy of making the list. But mostly you just brought that up so that you could mention Wyatt Earp and basically to a side, a side conversation about tombstone. Yeah, basically. I mean, that's the only reason why I know so much about that fight is because of Wired Earp. Exactly. But there you go. But yes, I had to mention that. And then, of course, and we we established this in in the beginning as as, as one of the terms was if you could probably pick 25 separate occasions on which Sam Langford went up and (laughs) wait. and, but he just kept doing it and, right. uh, and going back down and then going back up when there wasn't any one pickup party because he wasn't allowed to fight for a world title. Um, that, yeah, yeah, that is just rather than there being one big obvious circumstance, it was just an entire career belt built on going up in weight and going down in weight. Yeah, although I did take a look at his record to see, oh, was there some sort of significant signature win at heavyweight for Sam Langford? And, and at least according to BoxRec, where there's, you know, newspaper decisions are counted as official decisions. Sometimes it can get a bit confusing, but he fought Harry Wills a bajillion times, approximately. And and pretty much all of them were losses uh, that he couldn't he couldn't get past Harry Wills. Uh, so I didn't really see. You know, there are a few guys like that who made these remarkable leaps, but lost in their yeah. bigger fight, you know, like a, a Stanley Ketchell Trying to beat Jack Johnson is a huge leap. He did not beat Jack Johnson. Uh, Mickey Walker right, had a lot. Been fighting Joey Maxim and damn nearly right. did it. Yes, that's another perfect example of like almost. But if they didn't win the fight, uh, I was about to say Mickey Walker, you know, had a lot of good heavyweight wins, but uh, not great heavyweight wins. You know, he, he, he fought it like he was 150 something and his opponents were 200 pounds and it, it didn't scare him off. But there wasn't a signature victory uh, among those. So. Yeah, sort of a, a tricky list. I'm, I'm glad that you left it kind of wide open to just interpret what what constitutes a significant leap in weight, but it did it did have to be a win at the at the higher weight. Right. All right. Um that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Many thanks to Kevin Cunningham for joining us. Um we will be back next week for our preview of the September thirtieth pay-per-view extravaganza. <laughs> <laughs>
highlighted by Canelo Alvarez versus Jamel Charlo. Until then, thank you for listening. Safe, be kind, be well.